0: Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Read verses 1 through 5 as well, but our text is 6 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. Has all that you and I need for life and godliness, give it your reverent attention. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel Contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word, that all of it is profitable for our souls, as we consider any given portion of it, including this that is before us tonight. Would you please bless the preaching of the word? Would you please, Lord Jesus, uh, assume your prophetic office afresh in our midst and speak through me to each one of us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, back there, Tegan, all of you got a question for you. Do you know what hell is? You've heard the, the term, right? Hell, you've heard of it? You know what it is? Well, it's a very, very scary and terrible place where people who haven't trusted in Jesus to make them right with God, where they go and they suffer forever for their sins against God. It's a very, very horrible place. There is no place worse that one can imagine than hell. And the bad news, kids, the bad news is that every one of us, including Pastor Mark, every one of us in this room, and indeed everyone in the world, deserves to go to hell. We are, when we begin our life, we are worthy of God's wrath. We deserve to go to hell, including you including myself. That's the bad news, but the very, very good news, the great news, in fact, is that you do not have to go there and you will not go to hell. And I will not go to hell. None of us go to hell if we believe the right way. The right way and the right things. If we trust, trust is another word for believing, if we trust the right things, and the right person. Okay? Paul is very, very concerned here about trusting, excuse me, about believing the right things. And that's what this message is about, the importance of believing the gospel of Jesus, which we are going to talk about at length here in the remainder of our time in the message this morning. There are two points that I've derived from this text, or uh, that summarize this text uh, well, I believe. First, if you want to avoid going to hell, you need to firmly reject any gospel that differs from the one that Paul preached. If you want to avoid going to hell, you need to firmly reject any gospel, quote-unquote, that differs from the one Paul preached. And secondly, if you want to avoid going to hell, you need to firmly embrace the gospel that Paul preached. If you want to avoid going to hell, you need to firmly embrace the gospel that Paul preached. So first, you need to firmly reject any quote-unquote gospel that differs from the one that Paul preached. This uh, text is all about that very... Fact that I just summarized for you there in that sentence. The situation that's going on in in the churches of Galatia or the region of Galatia, there were a number of churches that comprised this region. Um, There are a couple of different views as to where Galatia was. There's the Northern Galatian Theory and the Southern Galatian Theory. I'm not going to bother you with the details of that. It was in Asia Minor somewhere, which is modern-day Turkey. At any rate, there were certain teachers... uh, who fancied themselves to be Christians, who were in the Galatian region, and who were claiming to be, as I say, followers of Christ, and who were trying to get people to follow their teaching, particularly people in the churches that Paul is writing to, Christians, actual Christian folks. And these teachers were teaching things that were disturbing the peace of the churches to whom Paul is writing. Uh, churches that he himself established during his first missionary journey when he was in that region. This is probably, by the way, Iconium, Lystra, uh, Derbe, and Pisidian Antioch that are uh, at least those four churches are probably amongst the churches that he's writing to, uh, even though it doesn't mention them specifically here, but uh, that would comprise the southern portion of Galatia, which is, I think is a, a better, uh, a more likely uh, identification of the place to, to which Paul is writing. Anyway, Paul tells us that these teachers were distorting the gospel. We read that in verse 7. He describes them as, uh, there are some who are disturbing you, who want, to dis- who want. notice, they want to distort the gospel. It is their desire to distort the gospel. They are, and they altered it in such a way that the gospel ceased to be good news at all. You'll recall, and everybody I think here knows this, uh, and probably those listening also know, that gospel, the word gospel, English word gospel, translate a Greek word, translates a Greek word that literally means good news. You, uh, angelon, angelon. Uh, you means good, and uh, angelon is where we get the word angel from, or messenger, good message, good word, um, good news. And so, what these men These uh, teachers, we're going to call them false teachers because that's exactly what they were, what they were proclaiming was not good news, was not gospel at all. It was very, very bad news, the news they were proclaiming, bad news that is for anybody who was a sinner and was going to be judged by the infinitely holy and just God of the universe when they left this, uh, this world. It was very bad news for them in terms of their acceptance before such a God because it was not going to happen if the message of these false teachers was true. And this is why, by the way, Paul doesn't even want to use the word gospel, which means good news, to describe it. And we read that in verses 6 and 7. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, and then he says, which is really not another. In other words, it's not a gospel at all. It doesn't even deserve the title. It certainly doesn't deserve the title gospel. Is his point? <clears throat> this message of theirs had the gospel of uh, had gone from the one that Paul preached from being a, uh, a spiritually life giving message. It had been twisted by these men into a message that, if embraced, would involve would uh, would bring about the spiritual and eternal death of those who believed it. And these false teachers were enthusiastically peddling this spiritual poison among the churches in Galatia, and sadly, a sizable percentage of the professing Christians there in that area were either about to embrace or were in the process of embracing the message, this perverted, uh, this perverted um, message of these false, um, these false. Ministers, if you will. Um, so, the, the I won't get into the details here, but the verb that is used implies either it was about to happen or was in the process of happening. And Paul is furious. He really is furious. And his anger is directed not so much at the Christians themselves, the Galatian Christians themselves, although he is upset with them as well, but especially uh, and most obviously at those who are trying to lead them astray. He says in verse 8, But even though we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's how um, the New American Standard and a number of translations translate the original Greek word, but most of you have heard the original Greek word, which is anathema. Anathema is the word that is used there. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament was written somewhere probably around 200 B.C., before Christ was born, 200 years. That word, anathema, because it's Greek, is often the word that translates a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word, which you've heard me say now and then, now and again, is the, is the word harem. It's kind of hard to pronounce because it's not harem, uh, it's harem. Um, and anathema is used, was used by the Greek translators of the Old Testament Hebrew to, uh, to translate the word harem. And harem was the word that was used to describe, among other things uh, in the Old Testament, God's curse upon. And his judgment and wrath against unrepentant sinners, and this is, for example, just one example of the meaning of that, where that is the case, is in Malachi chapter four six, which is the last verse of the uh, Old Testament, actually the very last verse of the Old Testament. And he says in the latter part of that verse, "Less, oh, I'll read the whole verse." And I will, and he, and he's referring here uh, to uh, the Lord. Jesus, it's a prophecy, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And then it says, God says, lest I come and smite the land with an anathema, or with harem in the Hebrew. And it's in the, in the Septuagint, it's anathema. And notice, smite the land, so smiting in, implies, of course, violence, um, and forceful, um, destruction of the land, and he will smite it with a curse. So it's not merely just the curse of words, it's the curse of action. It's the curse of, um, a violent response to those who are under this curse. And hell, of course, describe, that's a perfect description of hell. Oh, not a perfect one, but it's a, it's a, an approximation of what hell is like, although you can't really describe the horrors of hell with the English language properly. Anyway, this is what Paul means here when he says, uses this Greek word, anathema. is When he says that in verse verses 8 and 9 of our text. I just lost my place here. Hold on just a second. Well, having troubles. So, at any rate, that's the word that he uses. And so, what Paul is saying is, what he's saying here is, it's really shocking, actually, when you think about it. He says, "Though we," and there he's uh, referring primarily to himself, kind of the the uh, the plural is often Paul uses the plural to, to, to reference himself. But even though we are an angel from heaven, should Preach uh, a perversion of the gospel, my, my, uh, paraphrase. Let him be anathema. Let him receive God's curse and his, the, a violent outpouring of his judgment and wrath. And so he's saying, notice the we is me, meaning Paul. He's saying, if I would want and desire and long to be the object of God's wrath, and curse, and to go to hell myself if I ever deviated from the message that I preached to you, Galatians, when I was among you in my first missionary journey. That's what he's saying. I would, I would wish that upon myself, that I should receive uh, such... He's talking about eternal damnation, of course. And he's saying, I would wish that I would be eternally damned if I were guilty of tampering with this gospel message that I preached to you last time I was here. We're with you, rather, because he's writing now. He's not there. Um, He's writing to them. He goes even further, though, than this, than saying, I would wish eternal damnation upon myself. He says, even if an angel, even if an angel were to come to you with a message that differed from the one that I preached to you as, as an apostle of Christ when I first came to you, he, too, should be eternally damned, that angel. And he doesn't, say, he doesn't just say any angel, he could have just said an angel. He says an angel from heaven, no less. An angel that uh, dwelt in the very presence of God himself and surrounded God's throne and saw the beatific vision continually. Let him be uh, damned eternally should he come with a message that is, differs from the one that you heard from me. So you see, this shows how absolutely certain this language here shows how absolutely certain Paul is of the truthfulness and the rightness and the accuracy and the purity of the gospel that he had been proclaiming. The risen Christ, of course, gave him that gospel. Gave him the message and trusted him with the message that he was communicating to others and he wants wills that no one, not even an angel from heaven, was, should tamper with that message, not even slightly. If the fearsome nature of his wording here in verse 8 that I just read, if that weren't enough, Paul then decides to hammer home the point further by repeating... Those same words in verse 9. I won't read it for you, but it's essentially a repeat of what he said in verse 8. So, point I think you all, uh, clearly getting, uh, by this, at this stage, um, and anybody who reads this would, is that if any man, if there was every, ever a man alive who was zealous for the purity of the, the gospel of grace, um, it was Paul. Now, of course, the other apostles undoubtedly shared the same, had the same zeal for the purity of the gospel, there's no doubt. But we have his words that point to that fact, uh, as opposed to the others where it's not these same words coming from their pen. At any rate, Paul is determined to protect that message, no matter what the cost to himself or to anyone else. Notice the risk he took. He's taking a big risk here by writing these words in this letter, because what he's doing, he's essentially giving the Galatian professing Christians to whom he's writing. He's giving them a fierce verbal—I'll call it a tongue lashing—but it really it's a, a quill lashing. Um, <laughs> he, he's 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 directing his comments at those his re, at his readers, and he's putting by doing that, he's putting his relationship with them at risk. He could conceivably. Um, permanently damage or alienate many of them in his relationship with them by writing in such strong, um, unvarnished language to them. But he was willing to risk that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written it. And he did this. Why did he do this? He did this for two obvious reasons. First of all, he did it for their spiritual good, that they might not uh, fall into the trap of this false gospel, believe it, and end up uh, uh, proving that they were never Christians to begin with. That's one reason he's concerned about, highly concerned about their spiritual well-being, but he is also, even more importantly, concerned about the glory and honor of Christ and God. God's glory is at stake when it comes to the gospel message, whether it's rightly or wrongly proclaimed. So, little soul searching uh, might be in order here. Paul was this zealous for getting the truth right. Would that does that describe you? Does that describe you? How willing would you be if you were in Paul's shoes or and you can be in Paul's shoes and may have been in Paul's shoes in, in a conversation that you were a part of where the gospel was being twisted. How willing are you or were you to risk losing uh, the admiration, respect, friendship even, of someone to whom you were talking in order to defend the gospel? You see, we have to we have to get it right. I made a mistake earlier in my Christian life of, and I didn't know better at the time but really of uh, I, I describe it as uh, sanding off the rougher edges of the gospel message uh, when I was talking with people. And I meant well but so did Uzzah. Um, so we must not do that. The gospel has to uh, hell has to be talked about. The uh, uh, Sin, uh, and its ugliness and God's hatred of it has to be included in the gospel message. It has to. Otherwise, salvation doesn't, has no meaning. If you're not saved from, from God's wrath because of your sin, it has no meaning to, to say that Jesus is my Savior, to trust Him as my Savior. So, we must do that. Are you willing to do that? Have you been in the past? Are you willing today? Even if you messed up in the past, are you willing today? You see, you need to pray that God would give you the grace to not mince words when it comes to his truth. Without in talking you can absolutely do it in love, but sometimes love is tough. Sometimes love means saying things that are hard. Um, So a couple takeaways from this point and then we'll move on to the second one. It's quite obvious that uh, the zeal that Paul displayed for the purity of the gospel must be a zeal that you and I have, increasingly. And we need to ask God, Lord, please give me greater zeal for the truth, greater love of the truth, greater desire to defend it. And, of course, uh, this goes uh, hand in hand with being zealous for the truth, and that is being a good student of the truth. That is to say, a good student of the book so that we might have a thorough knowledge of that true gospel in all its uh, beauty, and might have a knowledge of what a counterfeit looks like. When we hear words that don't line up, what we know is in the pages of Holy Scripture, and somebody is claiming to be telling you good news, uh, and it doesn't line up because you've read your Bible enough to go, no, 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 that's not right. Something's wrong here. And we have to know the truth well in order to be able to identify the counterfeits. So, that is uh, part and parcel of what God would have you uh, quite clearly take away from what Paul Paul's example. But secondly, if you want to avoid going to hell, not only do you need to reject firmly any gospel that differs from the one that Paul preached, but you also must firmly embrace the gospel that he did preach. That gospel, that message that Paul preached is encapsulated in a very uh, succinct phrase that Paul uses in verse 6. Look with me again. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. By the grace of Christ. Probably a better way to render that um, I'm convinced anyway, is by means of the grace which is from Christ, the of there, the genitive of um, really is a uh, under translation of the original. And he's talking here about the grace which flows from Christ, which he, brought brings brings to us in in the real gospel as opposed to the false gospel and so the galatians were in the process of, about to or were in the process of deserting the father who had called them by means of the grace which comes from christ and again The gospel with which Paul had been entrusted by our risen Lord was all about God's grace and it was all about Christ, the one who is the conduit for divine grace, the purchaser, as we'll see in a moment, of that divine grace that has to flow to a sinner in order for him to escape divine judgment for eternity in hell. So, we're gonna in the remaining time that we have, we're gonna look at those two elements of the gospel. It's the grace of God is emphasized in the gospel, and Christ is central to the gospel that Paul preached. So the grace of God—that um, the true gospel is all about God's grace—as uh, as found in this uh, succinct statement here or summary of the gospel—that um, that true gospel is all about God's grace. What that means is that. The sinner's salvation, any sinner who is saved, the sinner's salvation from beginning to end, and I'll explain that in a second, is attributable to the grace of God. And only the grace of God. So, Salvation, you've heard this before, Scripture describes salvation, uh, at times as something that happened in the past, in which case there it's a reference really to salvation, uh, to, not salvation, to justification principally, and union with Christ. Salvation is also described in Scripture as a process, as happening in the process of being saved, which is a reference to sanctification. The believer's growing, uh, 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 becoming more and more like Christ over the course of his Christian journey. And then salvation is also referred to as, as being future from our point of view for, uh, uh, here in this world. And there, of course, it's a reference to a glorification, being in heaven. Well, that whole process, that whole, or the, 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 the whole um, salvation, I don't want to use the word experience, um, <laughs> phenomenon, is all of grace. okay? So, let's take it apart just a little bit here. We'll take a few moments to do this. The first element, I'm going to call that, of salvation, uh, is union with Christ and justification. Justification is God's an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons us of all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's the shorter catechism definition, and it's an excellent one, which you need to memorize if you haven't. But justification and union with Christ are solely the result of God's gracious work in our lives. Romans chapter 1. Many verses could be brought to bear to make this point. But Romans, not chapter 1, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 read as follows. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all heard that uh, uh, verse many a time. But then he goes on saying, being justified and... As a gift, meaning from God, by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So notice, being justified as a gift by His grace doesn't get any clearer than that. The justification, that declaration in the courtroom of heaven, the moment we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that declaration is uh, divinely given. Is 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 a result of uh, divine grace. I didn't even mention, by the way, effectual calling, but that too, uh, regeneration, which which not in time but logically precedes justification. Uh, that too, uh, and I can't. I, I, I should have uh, actually found a verse for that, but I didn't do that. It just came to my head right now, so we're not going to look at a verse. Uh, although I could, if I had a second or two, I could probably come up with it. But at any rate, that alone is from God. Oh, that's right, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. There it is. Thank you, Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, mercy, no, remember, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There it is. He caused it. That's God's gracious work, gracious causing the, the dead heart to become alive. And then, as I just read in Romans 3, justification and union with Christ happens by the, as a gift by God's grace. Uh, and the faith that we exercise, that too is granted. In other words, God is graciously giving it to us. Philippians chapter 129 makes this point where we read, For to you it has been granted, in other words, by God is the one who is the grantor there. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe, that's the part I want you to hear, but also to suffer for his sake. But notice, both to suffer for his sake and to believe are granted. God does it. It's not something that we conjure up from within ourselves. God does it. It's a gracious gift of God, faith is. And so, uh uh effectual calling, I mean it's gonna be regeneration, justification, the faith that we that we use to believe in Jesus with is given to us. It's of God, and so too is sanctification, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, where we read, I'll start in verse 1, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Which is the third person of God. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is the Spirit who sanctifies. He does that work. He is God, the the third person of the Godhead. It is Him. So it is, is the grace of God and the Holy Spirit working in our hearts that brings about increasing Christ's likeness in our lives. And by the way, this is not to deny... Uh, hear me now. I am not denying, and Scripture does not in any way deny that the believer, the believer, must obey God's commandments, um, and he does so. He chooses to do so, but it's God who gives the ability to obey, which is again grace. It's the grace of God that gives us the ability to say no to sin and to say increasingly yes to righteousness. And then finally, God's grace is not only responsible for all that I've just said, justification, regeneration, justification, sanctification, sanctification, but it is also responsible for ensuring that we get to heaven. It is. Uh, it's responsible for our glorification. Second Timothy four eighteen makes this point eloquently, where Paul says, "The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom." What's true of Paul is true of all of us. And notice who's doing the bringing. It is the Lord. It is, therefore, his gracious um, pre- uh, preservation of our faith and uh, pers- the perseverance that we, that, we, that we do until the end of our days is of, of God's grace so that the final outcome is our glorification in heaven. Uh, and Paul says, that's the Lord who does that, who brings me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So you get the point. God's grace is responsible for the sinner's salvation from beginning to end. The whole kit and caboodle, as uh, my grandmother used to say. And one of the foremost reasons uh, that Paul is so bent out of shape here, back to uh, Galatians, one of the foremost reasons he's so bent out of shape is because... The new gospel, quote-unquote, that many of his Galatian readers were in danger of embracing, amounted to a virtual denial of the need for God's grace in one or more elements of salvation. God's grace, in other words, was not the focus of their message, of their gospel. God's, the focus of their so-called gospel was man's efforts to be good, specifically by being a good Jew first as they defined being a good Jew not as the Old Testament did so any of you who are listening to me yes any of you who are listening to me if not in this room perhaps listening to this sermon on sermon audio are you of the opinion that God's forgiveness, God's acceptance uh, of you is something that you need to earn by doing certain things. If that is the case, if you think you're earning your way into heaven, in other words, you are lost and you're headed in the opposite direction. You need to understand that you can't do a thing to save yourself. You cannot manufacture salvation or play any part that isn't a product of God's grace, including believing in Jesus. That has to even be given to you as well. And you need to look to Jesus alone to enable you to see your need of Him and to flee to Him in faith to deliver you from your sin and its consequences and its what it deserves, and to be your king, the one who now, until the end of your days, leads you in this life and into eternity. You must believe in Jesus alone to save you. Nothing that you do can contribute or does contribute to your, uh, your salvation or anybody else's for that matter grace. It's all about grace. And secondly, the gospel is not only all about grace, and but we're concluding with this, it's also all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Paul's message, his gospel, was thoroughly uh, Christocentric. You can hear what that means. Christ is at the center of it. It was Christocentric. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing, nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was Paul's summary of his message to the Corinthians, but not only to the Corinthians, to every other church uh, in which he ministered and to which he ministered. It was all about Christ. Why? Why? because it's only by looking in faith to Jesus of Nazareth alone, who is also God the Son incarnate, it's only by looking to him alone that sinners are going to be reconciled to the holy God of the Bible, which who is the only God and the true God. Uh, we read uh, Luke's words in... Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name uh, uh, under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that's he's referring there to Christ. And The name is a, is a substitute for the person. Jesus alone is the way. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only way to God. That is why the gospel message, the good news, is Christocentric. But, there's a, but why is Jesus the only way? Why is that? Why is it only through depending upon or trusting in Jesus alone that a sinner can be saved from eternal damnation? The reason is because God's ability, listen to me, God's ability to extend such saving grace to somebody that is central to the Gospel, God's ability to do that to to the sinners that he wants to save, that ability was purchased by Jesus through his life, his perfectly lived life under God's law, his death, uh, uh, and uh, receiving the punishment that uh, we deserve for our sins, hell, as we said in the Apostles' Creed this morning, his overcoming the powers of death and hell through his resurrection, and um, and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father in his ascension. And it was what Jesus did that purchased the grace that you and I need. Romans chapter, excuse me, not Romans, Revelation, chapter 5, verse 19. I'm sorry, I'm having troubles with my numbers today. Um, Verse 9, not 19. Let me back up to verse um, 8. And when he had taken the book the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb that's Jesus having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a song in other words to the lamb saying here's the song worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals why for thou hast was to me for thou wast slain and didst Purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. There he's saying he purchased the souls. Yes, he purchased the souls, but he also purchased the grace that allows the souls to be forgiven and to be reconciled to God by satisfying the justice of God so that the grace of God could come into play in the lives of these people, the elect. And the moment that human effort is thought to be responsible in any way for any aspect of a sinner's past, present, or future salvation, or or relies on anything other than Jesus Christ himself and his work and his life, death, and resurrection for their right standing before God now or in the day of judgment, the moment that happens, the value of Jesus' substitutionary work on the sinner's behalf is almost Infinitely, um, diminished. Jesus doesn't save anybody if works play a part in our right standing before God. Because if it's Jesus plus my good works, Jesus doesn't get anybody into heaven. Jesus, Jesus' atonement didn't atone. It didn't, it didn't secure the salvation of anybody. That's what's wrong with Arminianism. It horribly devalues the crosswork of Christ. And this is the other thing that made Paul so, if I can put it this way, hopping mad at these Judaizers and their perverse, man-centered message. They had robbed Christ of his place of preeminence and therefore of his glory in their message and in their preaching. And this is exactly what all salvation by faith plus works messages that are peddled today in the world do. They do the exact same thing. They they uh rob Christ of his glory there are a lot of them that are being communicated in churches that call themselves Christian the mormons call themselves christians and there are other there are other communions that i could name as well i'll refrain from doing so but anybody that adds says your works play any part in getting you saved whatever element of the salvation we're talking about, past, present, or future, anybody that does that, they are are robbing Jesus of his honor and his glory that he alone deserves. Because he alone purchased the salvation. So, in conclusion, is Jesus Christ, the one who I have described who is 100% God and 100% man and the only Savior of sinners, the only hope of sinful men to be reconciled to a sin-hating God is that Jesus is what he did in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension is that your only hope of escaping divine judgment for eternity. You see, it must be or you will die forevermore. Again, only God can give you the grace of faith. Only God can open your blind eyes of your heart. Only God can make you want, and you must want, Jesus for Jesus' sake, not just to get out of hell. Only Jesus, only God can give you that grace. If you're listening to me, you need to... you need to... Plead with God to have mercy upon you, to give you a heart, and have friends pray for you. Christian friends, I should say. Real Christians. And expose yourself. Put yourself in God's way by exposing yourself to the means that God regularly uses to bring sinners to himself. Come to church. Read your Bible regularly. Pray uh, and 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 cry out to God and say, God, I, I, you, you probably aren't even hearing me Uh but I'm I, I'm a miserable wretch, and He does hear you, by the way. Uh, but uh, there are different ways of in which God hears uh, people. But but expose yourself to the means and put yourself in God's way, and if God is uh, wishes, He will mercifully um, save you. And if you want that, there's a good chance that uh, He will give it to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the preciousness of the gospel truth that uh, Paul was so zealous about and that any true Christian should be so zealous about. We thank you that we can't in any way, shape or form, take any credit, that is to say boast, that we are right with you because of something we did or didn't do. Thank you that you remove the possibility of boasting from all men by making salvation purely of your gracious work through Christ alone. We pray, Lord, that if there is any soul listening to my words here in this room or uh, later through, the, uh, through Facebook Live, we pray that you'd have mercy upon souls that are unbelieving that are listening to this. And for those of us who are already your children, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to love your truth more and more and to zealously and carefully study it more and more and desire it more and more. For we need to hear this message over and over again, even though we're already beneficiaries of it. We need it in our daily lives that we might be motivated to serve you the way you deserve to be served by us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.